So, um, if you got your Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 7. And I'm going to pray for us real quick, and then we are going to jump in and try to move quickly through through a sermon that I had already planned on being a little shorter than normal, but we know how that usually turns out. So, um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for a chance to open your word and study it. God, we thank you for um, the freedoms. Um, We thank you for the availability of your word in a language that we can read and understand. Um, God, those are our blessings that in a in a, a very real way are not something that everybody in the world um, has access to. Um, that many people um, throughout the world live in darkness. Um, they live in darkness with no uh, verbal witness of the gospel and no written witness of the gospel. And so we thank you for the blessing of those things in, in our own lives. Um, we pray again as we continue in this season of not only Advent but of of missions focus in in um, Southern Baptist circles, um, that we would have a heart for your word um, being taken to the nations, um, whether that is sending missionaries um, or printing Bibles um, or translating Bibles, um, God, that your word would go out uh, unto all the earth. We thank you. Uh, we praise you. We ask that you would be honored in this time as we study. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are in Isaiah chapter 9. We're going through that classic um, passage in Isaiah chapter 9 about the coming of the Messiah. Um, and so our, our, we're zooming in on one verse tonight. Man, it's a verse that's got a whole lot of stuff in it um, that, that we are going to just barely touch on. So verse 6 is the passage we are looking at, and it is the passage that says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the the word Messiah, so this is a passage about the coming of the Messiah. So probably you're aware, if you've been in church for any amount of time, Messiah means uh, anointed one, it means chosen one. It, it denotes this person who was going to come in, in the Jewish nation who had been specifically picked and specifically sent for a specific task by God. Um, that idea of Messiah looms large in, certainly in the consciousness of the, of the Jewish people. But if you think about it, it, it as a function of, of Christianity's influence on the West... And, and just in general, man, the idea of Messiah, the idea of it, okay, I'm not talking about the Christian Messiah, but just the idea of a chosen one, man, it looms large in our imagination. So just think about, like I was, I was as I nerded out with people, I was thinking about just the stuff that is current right now pop culturally, okay? Um, you had the new Dune movie that came out, and I don't know if you know anything about the Dune movie, but it's basically all about a Messiah. It is about this prophesied character who is going to come and free this people from, from bondage. There's this TV show, um, The Wheel of Time, that's out on Amazon that's, that's pretty popular, right? The whole show is based around this idea that there's this one character called the Dragon Reborn who is a messianic figure who's going to come and be able to, to stop the evil one. There's a new Matrix movie coming out, right? And, if, and, and the Matrix had that whole idea of Neo being what? He was the one. 
Um, he was the one that, that, that could fix the whole system and whatever. That idea is, is heavy in our imaginations, and certainly that's a function of Christianity's influence on Western culture, but I think it goes beyond that. It's, it's, in, it's, it's, it's the way God has written our imaginations, okay? Because you see it um, all over the place in all kinds of different cultures. And so this whole section in Isaiah is about that very messianic king who will come and rescue the Jewish nation. The first verses we read, chapter or verse 2, was talking about this light that had dawned um, on the people who lived in darkness. That light was the chosen one, the anointed king, the Messiah who was to come. The next week we talked about the per- this, this Messiah was the bringer of blessing and freedom and peace um, to the people, right? And that was his unique ability to bring those things to fruition because of his being the anointed one. Um, but the incredible thing about this passage is, is not just that it is predicting this Messiah, but specifically, and maybe in some ways the thing that we don't, depending on who you're talking to, we always focus on, the thing that's most important is not that there is a Messiah coming, but what kind of Messiah that will be. A specific characteristic of that Messiah. And that is what I, what I would say is this. That specific characteristic that is drawn out in this passage is that the Messiah who is to come will be divine. All right? He will not just be a really good king or a really good soldier or a really good general. That he is, in fact, going to be God. So as Christians look backwards at this passage, we probably see a whole lot of that in it, right? Because we understand, we know who Christ is, and now we're looking back and going, oh yeah, I see Christ in this passage. Um, But there's probably some situations in which maybe we see too much, in a way, because there's some things in there that I probably, we think we see, but are not actually there, but we're going to go into that, so just hold on for a second. So here's the interesting thing. Um, there are typically two ways that people have read this passage throughout the history of the world. Okay, So obviously that probably the people who usually read this passage would either be Jewish people, because they're the people who care about the Old Testament, or Christian people, because they're the people that care about the New and the Old Testament. The Jewish, the typical Jewish interpretation of this passage, because I don't know about you, when I read this section that we've been going through, like I think, man, how can you be a Jewish person and not believe in the Messiah? You read something like this, and how can it not be the, the case that you would go, well, that's obviously talking about Jesus. Well, what typically is the case is that Old Testament scholars of the Jewish persuasion, and even some of a Christian persuasion, would say this passage isn't talking about Jesus per se. It's talking about King Hezekiah. All right. The deal is, is that this was a prophesied king who is to come, who is messianic in type, but he is not the ultimate messianic king. And they say, Hezekiah, who is the king who is born and comes to power roughly around the time that this prophecy is made. Now, we don't, again, some people date it weird and differently, and so some people would say it happens right before his birth. Some would say, no, it happens well into his birth. And then those people are trying to explain how you can have a prophecy about a king who's to come, who's already born, and all these different things like that. But the point is, is this, is that they would say, no, this is King Hezekiah. Um, The passage is imitating Egyptian Uh, kingship languages. So when a person became king in the Egyptian uh, nation, they would be given what were called throne names. Okay, So you think about, I I should have written one down, you know like Queen Victoria or any of the queens of England or the kings of England are called, you know, they're called by their name and then it's like 
defender of the faith, king of Ireland and India and whatever, you know, and all these different places, that, and they have all these titles. Well, the same thing was true in this sort of Near Eastern, Middle Eastern um, world. You would oftentimes give a new king these sort of other titles. And some people would say, that's what this is. This is just Hezekiah's kingly title names, all right? Um, Hezekiah, in fact, was a great king, okay? More than a great king. Um, listen, listen to what this, the, the book of Kings says about King Hezekiah, okay? So this is 2 Kings chapter 18. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord God commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territories from watchtower to fortified city. Okay, Here's the deal. If you didn't hear that line in there, there had never been a king like Hezekiah. He's the greatest king they'd ever had. In fact, we could read into that passage, he was better than King David. Okay, He was a more, even though God, uh, David was a man after God's own heart, this passage would, if you read it one way, would say... Hezekiah was even greater. He was the greatest, most godly king, most blessed king that the nation had ever seen. Okay, And so on one side you would say, man, it's, it seems like it's the case that if you're going to have some sort of messianic kind of king, Hezekiah almost fits the bill because the, the Bible speaks very highly of him. And yet, despite the incredible nature of his reign, it still seems to fall short of several things that are said about this messianic person in Isaiah chapter 9. So let's just kind of read that passage again, verse 6, and make a couple observations as we go. Because some things would fit fine with Isaiah, I mean with Hezekiah, but other things would, would not. And certainly what we're going to see is next week when we see sort of the, 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 the way his reign works out into the future that Hezekiah falls woefully short of those things, okay? But let's look at this one first. So it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Okay? So the language points to sort of a, a, a joint idea there, that this child is going to come into the world as any child would. Okay? He is not going to be a, a messianic-type figure that steps into history fully grown and out of nowhere, you know, something like that, right? He is going to be born to the world as children are, but at the same time, he's a son that has been given to us. He is born to us, but he is given to us as well, okay? To point to the idea that there is a natural kind of side to this thing, but that there is also something different there. He's not just a normal kid who is born and happens to end up doing well or something, right? Being a good leader. That, that God has given him to us for a special purpose, then it goes on to tell us that, and the government will be on his shoulders. Okay, if you, if you, if you pay attention to the, to the tense of the word, right, this kid comes out. From the get-go, the government is already on his shoulders. 
What I mean by that is authority is his at birth. He doesn't grow into it. Uh, He doesn't become worthy of it. He doesn't win it and take it. At, at At his givenness and bornness, the government is upon his shoulders. That word government is a weird translation because it's a word that is only found in this verse and in the next verse in the whole Bible. We don't have it anywhere else. Um, and so it's a little bit weird to translate. Sometimes it's translated authority. Sometimes it's translated dominion. Um, there are others that would say it should mean something like priest, uh, a princely epitomeness, right? The idea of saying, man, if there was like a, a mold for a prince and his princely rule, that's what we're talking about. That's the kind of authority, you know, that, that the perfect prince, that's what the perfect rule of a prince, that's what it would look like. And so, um, but notice it says this government is on his shoulders. You remember what we talked about last week of the things that he would free us from when it talked about the idea of the, the rod and the staff and the yoke would be taken off of us, right? These things would be removed from our shoulders. And yet in this passage, what is happening Something is being put on his. Okay? So there's this interesting picture there where our burden is lifted. A burden is placed on him from the get-go. Which, again, we would, we would understand that that would be right if, if this Messiah is who we think he is as opposed to um, the typical Jewish idea that it's Hezekiah. Dominion is not something he achieves. It is something he is born with. It is something that he is. He is has authority by nature of his being, not because of something he has earned or been given. Okay, And then the passage gives us these four kingly names for him. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, each one of those names, could we could, we could kind of do a whole study, probably, on each one of those names. They're, they're interesting, um, particularly one of them we're going to dig into a little bit, but each one has its own kind of unique stuff that's going on in it, okay? And so, just for example, so that wonderful counselor, that word wonderful is an interesting word in Hebrew, because it doesn't, wonderful is a fine translation, I guess. Sometimes it's translated marvelous counselor. But there's something, there's, there's an idea that is missing in it. Because almost every time that, Bible, that word is used in the Bible, it is used of something miraculous. Okay? So when we say wonderful, I don't know about you, but I think wonderful, I'm like, oh, like, really nice. Or really great. That's not the idea here. He's not just a really great counselor. He is a miraculous, maybe a wondrous counselor. Okay? A little distinction there. It's still probably not exactly right. But, but every time we talk about this idea of wonder or marvelousness, it's in response to something supernatural that God has done. Okay? That's the kind of marvelous he is. Okay? And so, first off, that's the piece. He's not just wonderful, but he's wondrous. But then also, the way Hebrew works is it's hard to determine what, what order the words are actually in, in that passage. Meaning, is he, um, let's see, how do I write it? Is he a supernatural, wondrous counselor, or is he someone who gives supernatural or wondrous counsel? Okay, do you see the distinction there? Now again, you might assume that they would go together. A supernatural counselor is going to give supernatural counsel, okay, and that may be the case. But there's an interesting thing to say there, right? That this Messiah who is to come is going to, when he speaks into your life, there is supernatural effect of it. 
whether based on his supernatural counselorness or his supernatural counseling, but it is it changes things. Okay, what's interesting uh, when we talk about a counselor, like that this the idea of that word is used sometimes in terms of military counselors and political counselors or something. One thing that's interesting when we delve into the story of Hezekiah is Hezekiah makes an incredibly bonehead decision at one point in his in his story. We'll talk about it next week. It's not something sinful per se that he does, but it is something so clueless that you would go, man, why did you do that? That was a bad idea, okay? Which pushes against this idea of him being a supernatural, wondrous counselor. It's sort of like, man, he doesn't even seem to have the sense in one aspect to govern his own realm and look to the future wisely. But, but we'll talk about that next week. It just seems like it maybe it doesn't quite match with, it's saying a little too much of Hezekiah, okay? The next one is mighty God. And again, this mighty God is a cool word because it doesn't translate mighty God. Mighty is fine. It's something you could do, but, but here's the distinction. The, the, the Hebrew word is El Gibor. So El is the word that means God. You put it, anytime you have a God in something, you put El before it. And then Gibor, it can mean mighty or strong, but you know what it also means? It means warrior. Okay, so when it's talking about the kind of strength that this God has, this God is not a mighty God who can go out and lift heavy things. Okay, that's not the kind of mighty he is. He is the kind of mighty who is victorious in battle, who is victorious over enemy armies, who is victorious um, against the, the, the foes of, of the people of Israel. Okay, he is a warrior God. And, and you could translate it that way. You could translate it, instead of saying mighty God, you could say warrior God. Um, not generic strength, but a strength in a particular context. That should probably make sense to us, because if we look at the blessings from the last passage, several of them were connected to this idea of having defeating our foes who were having us in bondage, right? And freeing us from that in an almost military kind of context. And so, again, that, that makes sense. Um, everlasting Father, or, or maybe another way to say it would be Father for all time, that he will continue throughout history to care for us in a fatherly way. Okay? And then the last one being Prince of Peace, which is maybe the most straightforward of them all. But the idea that um, through his rule, um, he is going to bring peace, just like we saw last week when we said that the garment of blood and the shoes of the tramping warrior will be rolled up and burned in the fire, right? We won't need them anymore because the era that this messianic king will usher in will be an era of peace forever. Again, not something that Hezekiah seems to have achieved, okay? But we'll get into that a little more next week also. Now, here's the thing um, about those four names, so again, I think they say um, too much for the, it to be Hezekiah, but also something happens when we read them because I think we notice something about those four titles that maybe is us reading a little too much into them as well. Um, so some, let, me, let me say this at the same time. So somebody might say, so cool, is this not about Hezekiah at all? Because, man, especially when we go back to verse chapter 7, it seems like that whole thing about unto us a child, I mean, uh, we shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us, and there's some things there that seem like uh, maybe they might have to do with Hezekiah in some way. And the answer is, I think, this. 
Hezekiah is, we talk about this all the time, he is a type of Jesus. Okay? Um, Hezekiah is a type of Messiah. He's not the Messiah, but he is a type of Messiah. There are some things about Hezekiah's life and coming, the same way David had things about his life and coming, that were Jesus-ish. But they are not the ultimate fulfillment of that. So when we talk about types in the Bible, we are talking about foreshadowing of things, not the fulfillment of things. And so, so if somebody were to look at this passage and say, is this about Hezekiah? You could say, it kind of is, because these things are being said in the birth and reign of Hezekiah, who is kind of like Jesus, but he's not Jesus. The whole, I would argue the whole point of all of these guys' lives is to point to is the fact that the guys that are like Jesus are not Jesus. Okay? David is a nice dude, and a man after God's own heart, and he is not Jesus, and he makes that abundantly clear, right? Hezekiah is a good dude who loves the Lord and leads people back to him. But man, he makes it abundantly clear that he is not Jesus. He is not the Messiah. Okay? So, foreshadowing, not fulfillment of those things. But when we get to this passage, we read it and we go, man, I think I see something happening here, okay? And probably you're already thinking it in your head and you've thought it before when you read this passage. You go, those four names have something significant about them. One of them is counselor, okay? Who else do we know in the Bible that's called the counselor? It's the Holy Spirit. There is this eternal father, okay? We know a, a father. There is this prince of peace. A prince is a son. And so you go counselor, father, prince, father, son, Holy Spirit, right? And then you go in right in the middle of it, it drops this mighty God. In the middle. And so we go, cool, I think that's a Trinitarian passage. It's pointing to the fact that the language is there, the Trinitarian language, okay? And, and here's the thing I think is the case. We're probably meant to see that. It's meant to stand out to us as Christians living 2,000 years, 3,500 years, or whatever it is, 2,500 years after the fact. We're supposed to see that and go, I know something they didn't know. Okay? I know a fuller picture of the Trinitarian nature of God from the New Testament. And so when I see that passage, it makes me think things that the people who read it the first time around probably didn't think. Okay? But there's also a sense in which we might be reading a little too much into that. Okay? So think of it like this. If this is talking about a child that is going to be born into the world who is the Messiah, okay, is the Holy Spirit the Messiah? And the answer is no. He's not. Is the Father the Messiah? And the answer is no, he's not. Okay? So I think probably the case is, is there it is meant to draw our attention, but we're not supposed to see a firm trinity in this passage, even though it kind of looks trinity-ish. Okay? Does that make sense? I don't know if it does or not. Um, but here's the deal. It doesn't matter. Because this is a super Trinitarian passage, and we don't even need the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in it. Okay, You don't need those three for this to be super Trinitarian. You want me to tell you why? The reason why this is such a Trinitarian passage is because of the other title, El Gibor, Warrior God. Okay, Warrior God is the thing that makes this passage the most Trinitarian out of all of it, even though it doesn't specifically say anything about Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. Well, why is that? Okay? So, some scholars, again, who don't think this is talking about Jesus, 
will look at it and they'll say, well, that, that whole thing about the, the Messiah who is born and is to come being called Mighty God, well, we're not supposed to take that literally. We shouldn't take that, you know, literally. Um, what is going on there is the real God, the one true God, is a warrior God. And this Messiah is so, like, in sync with that God that he's being called by that name also. Okay? Which, the thing about that is, that doesn't happen in Judaism. Okay? It happens in other religions, pagan religions. If you have the God of death and somebody says, now I'm the king of death, that makes sense in other places. It doesn't make sense in, in Judaism because you don't take on the name of God. Right? You don't do that. There's one God. He is to be worshipped. Nobody else gets to be worshipped. Nobody's worshipped except God. Okay? You don't go around saying, hey... Because I follow God, I'm, I'm a little God. That's not how, we don't do that in, in Judaism, okay? So they would say, well, he's just tacking on this name. I don't think that can possibly be the case. It, the point of that passage and the reason why it puts the nail in the coffin of saying that this is just about Hezekiah is this. What's really cool is you turn over one chapter, okay? So go over to chapter 10 for just a second. So here's what's going on in chapter 10. It goes on to tell the story of the fact that God, um, at this point, has already sent the nation of Assyria. I don't know if you remember your, your Bible Old Testament history. The nation of Assyria comes in and conquers the ten northern tribes. Remember the ten tribes that had broken off? They lived in the north, the nation of Israel. Israel is now kaput, right? It's conquered. And now the Assyrian army is coming for the tribe of Judah, the southern tribe where Jerusalem is, okay? And remember, we, we mentioned the story just like maybe a few weeks ago. 180,000 strong army, more than that, come to the gates of Jerusalem and say, give up, all the other gods of the nations have all failed, you're going to fail too, your God won't protect you, surrender now or pay the price. And Hezekiah prays to God and the people pray to God and God says, don't worry, in the morning they won't be there. And the next morning everybody wakes up and 180,000 people in the Assyrian army are dead. Okay, in, in one night. That's the story that is told roughly in verse chapter 10. It's this story of the fact that Assyria was used as an instrument of God to judge the people of Israel, but now God is going to judge Assyria. He is going to conquer them, and they are not going to continue to hinder the, the, the southern tribe, the, the, the nation of Judah. Okay, And then it says that after that time, the remnant of Israel is going to return to God. The, the few people who are left out there, who are still um, alive and, and whatever after Assyria's invasion and then retreat, those people are going to return to God, the remnant, okay? And here's the key. Here's the key. Verse, verse chapter, chapter 10, verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Okay? Same word, El Gibor. Okay? So here's the significance of that. Because probably nine times out of ten we would just read right past it. In chapter 10, the name El Gibor is obviously, irrefutably, referencing Almighty God of the universe. Okay? The one true God. That's who El Gabor is. Okay? 
in verse 9, chapter 9 that is, the passage is definitely, without a doubt, about a person who will be born as a messianic leader, and that person who will be born into the world as a messianic leader is called also El Gibor. Okay? The, the significance is this, that they're right next to each other. It would be one thing if Moses had written El Gabor 2,000 years previous, and then now Isaiah was writing it. You might say, man, he's, they're not using the name in the same way. They're completely using these two things differently. They have nothing to do with each other. Um, they're, they're, they're totally different situations. But that's not the case. You have the same writer in the same book in the same section, with the same emphasis of thought around the same theme, say, the one true God of the universe, his name is Warrior God, Mighty God, El Gabor. And his Messiah, who comes to earth, who is born as a child, who is given to us by God, who takes on these other roles of wondrous counselor, everlasting father, um, Prince of Peace, he is also mighty God. Okay? That's a trinity. And you might say, no, it's not, Ash. It's just the duality. And you're right. Yeah, it's the two of them, right? We, yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah, whatever the, the word is. So you don't, we don't have the whole picture of the trinity yet. But, man, you just have to have the first step. Because once Jesus is God, it's not too big a step to... to Go to the New Testament and see that the Holy Spirit um, is God as well. Okay, and So again, it's interesting because when you listen to Jewish scholars, like, man, they do some dancing when they get to this passage. They do some dancing to try to figure it out. And, and they'll, they'll, they'll change the way the passage has always been understood for thousands of years to try to make it not about what it seems and change it up or whatever. Um, but it's there. It's just one of the number of places in the Old Testament where you see this idea that, no, the Messiah who is to come is divine. He is God. Jesus is God. Yes, he is the Son of God. In, in the person that, uh, of the Trinity, he is the Son, but he is also God. And so the coming of the Messiah into the world, um, this incredible statement that we find, um, Another thing, I mean, again, consider the fact that, I mean, you just don't say this stuff in Judaism. You don't say this stuff. If you're a Jewish prophet, you don't claim God is God and then claim that man is God right next to each other. You don't do that. This would be, it would be blasphemous. Uh, Isaiah would have been executed for it. It would have been, you know, heresy, right? You can't do that. And yet... He says, no, this is just the way it is. This is who that king um, to come is. And, of course, everybody at the time goes, well, it can't be blasphemous because Isaiah's a good dude. It, there must be some meaning to it, even if we don't understand it completely. Well, we do understand it completely now. We know who that God Messiah is. It's Jesus Christ. And so, again, I don't blame the Jews for not getting it at the time because, man, there's a lot of confusing stuff there. But in light of the coming of Jesus Christ, as we look back to this passage I don't know how you can see anything else but a divine Jesus being the fulfillment and the Messiah that we've been looking for. All right? And so, man, that's it. That's all I got. There's no closing. There's not a, there's not a, a meandering story to lead us down. Man, it is just fall off a cliff, ended. Okay? Um, 
but, but it's another piece that we, we reflect on during this time. That unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And we will call him Wonderful Counselor, um, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. Okay? We're going to look next week because the verse 7 closes this prophetic passage, but it closes this with, with what the future looks like. Okay? What is the result of this messianic king's reign? And again, we're going to compare it to Hezekiah's reign and see if Hezekiah is who it's talking about, this prophet got it way wrong. Okay? Um, this Isaiah, if he was talking about Hezekiah, should probably be executed. Because the Bible says if a prophet comes and says what the future is going to hold and those things don't happen, then they're a false prophet and they shouldn't be trusted. Okay? But nobody saw his, I mean, nobody saw Isaiah that way. They saw him as a true prophet. And, and we would argue verse 7's fulfillment happens in the person of Jesus Christ, not in the reign of Hezekiah. Okay? We'll talk about that next week. Um, and so just something to kind of reflect on, something to hold in your, um, I don't know about you, but every once in a while, like you get those little things of doubt that run through your head that just sort of go, man, are we all crazy? Like, is this, is, are we just all crazy? Is, is Jesus really, can this all be right? Can this all be true? Because there's lots of people that think it's not. Am I, am I reading this thing right? And then we come across these little nuggets in the Bible where I go, yeah, man, there it is. It's right there. It's been there for 2,500 years. Um, and there's nothing uh, that emboldens us in our faith, I think. So, okay, cool. Amen. Weird ending. Sorry. Um, take it home. Think on it more. Let me go to the Lord in prayer for us. Father God. Uh, we thank you for this day again. We thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the way that as we pay attention to it, as we, as we um, God, sometimes in your word you punch us in the face with things, and sometimes there are subtle things that we almost miss unless we are paying attention. We ask that you would continue to press upon us um, the truth of your word, the, the, to show us the, um, God, the things just as Christ said as he walked on the road to Emmaus, that as he looked back through all the scriptures and, and showed all the places that were pointing to him and his coming, that were pointing to the nature of who he was and the reality of his divinity, um, that were pointing to the sacrificial nature of his mission, um, that were pointing to um, what he would do in his perfect life and his perfect death on the cross and in his resurrection. Um, God, we thank you for those clues that, that shore up our faith. Um, God, so that as we trust in you, um, we live in, in confidence um, at, at who you are and what you have done. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.